Movies by Minutes. Project number five. It's Silverado this time. That's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan. Who wrote the show. Let's settle up now, kids. Cause here we go. Howdy and welcome back to another episode of the Silverado Minute Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed western Silverado. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm Tom Taylor. I'm Pete Mubbert. And I'm the intern Jerry Porter. And we are the hosts of the Indiana Jones Minute podcast, and today we are talking about Minute 37 of Silverado. And Minute 37 begins with Patton confirming that Danny Glover is now their friend, and it ends with one solid minute of the four of them riding horses across the American heartland. (laughs) Uh, And it's actually fine that almost nothing happens in this minute because it gives us a chance to talk with our guest, the man behind the sweeping score to this movie, composer Bruce Broughton. Welcome, Bruce. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) You're so so enthusiastic. (laughs) We we are happy to have you here um, because, yeah, otherwise we would just be, uh, we'd have to have a horse wrangler on or something and talk to him because... uh, (laughs) Um, I have a question, but I have an excellent question. It's like the first question that occurred to me as I was watching this minute and thinking about the music. If you took this theme and played it for somebody completely out of context, you just drop the needle on the record and start playing it. Somebody would go, Oh, that's from a Western. That's a Western. I'm listening to a Western right now. And I, and I, and I don't know anything about Jerry's kind of a musician. He's just like, a, like a drummer or something, but I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have the language of music or anything. So I wouldn't be able to tell somebody Okay, these are the elements that make this a Western score. But what are those elements? Or am I wrong? Is it just, uh, I know it's a Western because I'm looking at horses. You know, I've listened to this piece for so many years. Um, I don't know. It's, to me, it's, it's just a piece I wrote. Uh, <laughs> the thing that probably makes it a Western, there's probably two things. One, it could be the reliance on the French horns because the French mm. horns um, mm. are sort of a big Western thing. And the other thing, it's in this style of, um, i got to be cautious as I say this, it's in the, um, it's in this sort of the stylistic bag of two Westerns, which were sort of the models for the style, which was the big country and um, Elmer's Magnificent Seven. So oh, yeah. that kind of big open, open sky uh, energy and all that kind of stuff before, particularly before Big Country, which was done by Jerry Moss, um, Westerns were not like that. They were much mm. more tra- sort of traditionally underscored. Um, mm. Those those two, first the Moss score and then the Bernstein score, that really sort of made the Western into a traditional uh, Hollywood Western score, which was what the director asked for. So when he asked for that, mm. I thought, okay, I mean, that's sort of the style. And I was happy to do it. Because I, I like the style, and it's you know it's got a lot of energy, it's got a lot of enthusiasm, and where are you going to go in the movies today that has any enthusiasm? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Where people aren't being blasted through buildings, or you know, being <laughs> or something. right. That's no awesome. I, you know, that my question was <clears throat> for Bruce, uh, the opening, and, and you've kind of answered it. I'd like to dig a little deeper. I said, you know, when when cooking up a rousing western theme. How many cups of the Magnificent Seven is appropriate <laughs> to use? 
And, uh, you well, know. Yeah. No, I, finish with your question. I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, of course, that's famous and iconic and I'm sure influences what people want to hear or now certainly expect to hear. And in a way, do you feel like that? Um, can that sort of cage you in as a composer? Well, you, you don't. You, I mean, it's got to be familiar to the ear. Mm-hmm. Like, but but you can't. You don't want people going like, "Oh, come on, man! This guy's just ripping off the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> but yet, it needs to be something that is that feels good, which oftentimes is comfortable and familiar, like the Magnificent Seven. Okay. Well. Elmer, Elmer Bernstein, who wrote Magnificent Seven, thought that uh, Silverado was a ripoff. So oh, really? let's, let's start there and try and back back <laughs> off. Uh, if you knew Elmer, probably half of the things everybody else wrote was probably a ripoff too. But anyway, well, well, he he uh, ripped off. Uh, was it Copeland, I mean, Elmer, right? Elmer, Elmer <laughs> did a spectacular job on a lot of those titles, but, but it really wasn't. Except that the as I mentioned the. Um, the director, Larry Kasdan, was very specific about what he wanted in the film. Uh, he was very specific about what the film was and that, and he made sure that I understood the structure of the film as he understood it. So he laid all that stuff out. Mm. Uh, we talked carefully about the music, not about, not so much about the style, but more, more about the content dramatically. And here we're gonna, we want this and here I want all this stuff. So in that way, and, and Larry's not particularly musical. I mean, he's, he's not a musician, although, you know, he he liked the score, so I guess he's got good taste. <laughs> uh, but uh, but the but the one thing that he did say in terms of style was, um, he said, I, "I want a traditional Hollywood Western score." Now, the reason he said that was because with this movie, um, he was trying to make a Western for people who had never seen it before. And when he told me that, I said, "Well, you know, like who?" And he said, well, look, he said, think about it. So you and I have grown up with Westerns. We've saw Westerns when we were little kids. But he said, our kids haven't. And actually, the last Western before Silverado that made a lot of money, that was a big hit in the box office, was Blazing Saddles, <laughs> which was a parody. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Right? Yeah. A parody. And once you get to a parody, the style is dead, right? So Larry and his brother, Mark, who were co-writers, tried to resuscitate the Western thing. And they did a pretty damn good job because after this we started seeing westerns again and i went on i did another western what 10 years later with uh, with tombstone so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different style but I mean, it was still a western and and larry went on to do um uh, the costner movie uh oh uh, wyatt earp yeah wyatt earp you know yeah. so the western was and then there are a lot, a lot of different kinds of westerns that have gone on since then so yeah he resuscitated the western and in that he he looked at hundreds of Westerns. He looked at a lot of the John Ford things. He looked at all the classic Westerns. And in the movie, the movie is very highly structured. This is actually going to answer your question, I think. <laughs> uh, it's really highly structured in terms of the form. I mean, it's so careful that when, when the bad guy meets the good guy at the beginning, the first line is, hello, Payton, hello, Cobb. And the last line they say to each other before the shootout mm-hmm. is, yeah. goodbye. Goodbye, cop. You know, so I mean, things like that. And I've, I've often said about Silverado. Silverado is so tight that if you're watching it for the first time and you get up for a bathroom break, you probably missed a major bit of the story. You know, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. It's a very intense thing. Having said that, when I went to do the score, I was concerned more about the theme than I was about the style because I knew that it was going to be big and energetic, and, and I could do that because because I could do that. 
Uh, I was more concerned about the theme and that it had a theme that um, sounded in some way Western, not so much in Hollywood, but in, in terms of what a Western theme would be like. And, and in that way, I went back to other Americana kinds of pieces like Billy the Kid of mm. Copeland. Again, not to rip off Copeland's style. People say, oh, you did Copeland, you did Bernstein, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, people play this thing. Oh, what is this? Sound? Oh, that sounds like so. And they go, screw you. This is a ritual. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, um, well, on Copeland, I'm, I'm sitting next to a piano so I can play this. The big interval, the big musical interview interval that, that Copeland uses a lot to kind of um, represent the spaces of the West is this one. There's a lot of... That sounds sort of like Copeland and open spaces. So mm -hmm. the tune is built on two of these. Two really big Americana intervals. And after that, oh, okay, so the tune goes on. So that was what I was mostly concerned with. The movie itself is about friendship. It's about these four guys who try to break up at the beginning before the 34-minute section that we're going to talk about, or maybe <laughs> we are talking about it, I don't know. Um, they they sort of meet accidentally, two of them are related, the third guy joins them, and then the fourth guy joins them, and they're all outcasts, and they all have something in common. They try to get away from each other, and they eventually are brought back. They are the good guys, they are the white hats, right? The bad guys are the other people. But basically, this is a, a classical movie of white hats against back, black hats. Um, there's no big romance in the movie. So there, I mean, there's a little attempt at bringing women in, but it's not very big. You know, it's mostly just the guys. Mm -hmm. You have the good guys who are really good and you have the bad guys who are really, really, really bad. So it's kind of a straight up and down emotional kind of a thing. They have a family bit, which has, you know, a part to play, but basically it's the good guys versus the bad guys. So the what I figured when I started writing this music I was sort of disappointed, actually, because I thought, oh, this is just a straight up white hat, black hat kind of a dramatic thing, you know, and uh, I can't do this and I can't do that. So I, I wrote a score that was basically muscular and I was not fussy with counterpoint and lots of things going on. I mean, the music hits you right in the face because it's strong and it's energetic, just like these guys were. I mean, I'm I'm six foot two. When I met the, the guys, they, they filmed this in Santa, Santa Fe. When I met um, the, the, all the good guys, they were all taller than I am. You know, they were like <laughs> three, six, four. I mean, these are big guys, you know? Yeah. And um, I can't think of the guy who was the bad guy. Um, Brian Dennehy? Yeah, Brian Dennehy. Yeah. I met Brian Dennehy at, at the premiere of the film. Brian was really big. I mean, he was, yeah. he was six, six or six, seven. He was way bigger than I was. And he carried a lot of weight, you know, and I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a skinny guy, but, but I, I didn't look like Brian Dennehy. So we're talking about big guys. And even on the screen, they have a huge presence. So that was basically all the stuff that I put into the score. I really wanted the, I really wanted the energy. And um, the other thing was the, the way they shot, the scene that you want to talk about uh, with the writing was actually the first scene I saw in the movie. It's one of the mm -hmm. first things they shot. And, um, you know, it's this beautiful background of the mountains. And Santa Fe uh, is, you know, like 7,000 feet up in the sky. And it has mm -hmm. this gorgeous 
lack of air that makes you lightheaded and kind of mystical and thinking you're. <laughs> um, I mean, there are a lot of things that went into the making of this uh, of the theme, as well as into the making of the score, uh, as well I, I assume as into the making of the movie. So there you go. Can I can uh, I ask you? You mentioned that was the first scene you saw. Um, how do you when when you're asked to score a movie like this? Do you see the like the rough cut of the film first, and then you start writing the music, or do you write like pieces of music and they kind of film around that, or how do, how does this? Fit no, together? you you at least I do. I, I mean, now things are done a little bit different because everything is digital, uh -huh. uh, it, and those I mean, we're talking about 1985, so that's mm -hmm. like you know two childhoods away. Um, <laughs> we actually worked on film. I mean, uh -huh. I, I I've said this to students. I can't. I can't literally remember the last time I saw a piece of film. Mm. 20 years, 25 years. I mean, because everything's digital now, right? But in, in, at that time, it was film. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've just forgotten the question. Okay, so the reason I, I said that was because with digital stuff, you can make changes very quickly. And, and these mm -hmm. days, um, you have the fini you have the film, and you hope that it's what they used to call a locked film, meaning that they weren't going to make any more changes. Mm -hmm. But frankly, because of digital stuff, you can make changes right up to the last minute. So you make changes. The music has to be adjusted. The sound effects have to be adjusted. In 1985, not so much. And mm. we um, uh, we preferred to see the movie when it was locked. Now you may see a rough cut beforehand. I saw a rough cut. I saw the film when it was probably, I think it was two hours. I, I actually, I saw a first assembly. It was two hours and 45 minutes long. Mm, it was wow. really long and there was no yeah. music in it. So, I mean, it was really long. You know? <laughs> <laughs> frankly, it looked like, it looked like a much smaller movie than it was because mm. it doesn't have, it didn't have a lot of people in it. Silverado is about two blocks long in the mm. town. They mm -hmm. build it for the for the movie. Since then, it's been used in a lot of other movies. Um, it wasn't a cast of thousands. There are, you know, like, like the <laughs> the cattle stampede, which is very well done. Looks like thousands and thousands and thousands yeah. of cattle. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. It was maybe 40, 50 steer filmed over and over and over, <laughs> close <laughs> yeah. above, yeah. down below. You know, <laughs> so it uh -huh. looks like this massive stampede. But it, I mean, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a huge, huge, huge project. And there's a lot of open space on it. So mm. when we saw the film, I started getting ideas of, of what I, what kind of a score I might do. This is before I had my conversation with Larry. And um, when we actually, when Larry and I sat down to talk about the film and where the music was going to go, the film was done. It was mm. finished. Mm. Wow. Because uh, everything in a film, this is a big difference between film music and every other kind of music in the world. When you, when you write music for a film, you have to write music for that film as it happens, when things happen. So if, mm. if somebody jumps out of a hallway with a knife at 22.7 seconds and you're going to do a big booga booga chord, you got to be there 22.7 seconds. If you're <laughs> yeah, there at yeah. 23.5 seconds, you're late. Or if you're at 21 seconds, you're early. So you got to be there right there. So literally this sounds like hyperbole but it's not literally every note is measured we know the length of every note that goes into the movie mm -hmm. now if they change the scene which sometimes they do and and now they do it frequently you've got to change all the music you know so you've got to find music that's going to fit and, and then you sort of track wow. it and you yeah. select the library wow. but generally most of the music in films have been written specifically to the film and if there are changes you you hope you get the chance to rescore it and I, I mean, i've done that in movies where 
like I was working on, I think it was Lost in Space. And, and we were doing, we, I was showing the director what we had just recorded. And he says, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, that part of the scene isn't there anymore. That part of the scene, <laughs> now we put it in real four. And I went, oh, glad you mentioned that. You know, Thank you. Yeah. I had to take the music and I had to fix it and, you know, change it and adjust it and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So it's a, it's a very different kind of thing. I mean, movie music is really nothing more than accompaniment. Mm-hmm. It's accompanying the film. And if if the film were a singer, the piano, the um, the accompaniment would be just a few chords, you know, mm-hmm. because the singer would have the tune. Well, when you have a concert piece or if you have a song or something like that, that music is the whole thing. And then you can play it slower, you can play it faster, you can play it however you like it. In a movie, you play it one way. You play it mm-hmm. so that it gets all the cues and, and the tempo that's chosen is the tempo that's chosen for that scene. So the tempo on the thing when they're they're riding together is a tempo that I picked based upon how I felt about the scene and how I wanted the music to go to portray a certain kind of emotional moment in that scene, which is, it's a big scene because that's the first time the four guys are together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, name of the, the name of the cue is riding as one. It's the first time they're riding as one. They're, mm-hmm. they're a team, you know, it's the first time. So like when, when they're filming, when, when, the, or when the director is putting this story together and filming it, does he or she generally have something in mind? Like I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of Copeland here. I'm thinking of something. Or, and then they say, I want it to sound like this. Or do they often just say you have carte blanche? What does this sound like to you? What no, that, well, like? you hardly ever get carte blanche, but um, <laughs> I would say that generally what the director's worried about when he's filming the scene is how the scene is going to turn out. I don't think mm-hmm. he's thinking too much about me or she, whoever they are. Uh-huh. They're, they're thinking too much about music. Music is really an afterthought. And mm. music is, I mean, no movie, no movie is made to include music. Mm. Movies are made to tell a story. And the only reason they allow music in it, and then they need music, frankly, they need it, mm-hmm. is to help tell the story better or more specifically. So, you look at a scene that you say, okay, this is a pretty nice scene, but you know, it's not scary enough. Anything you can do, they turn to the composer mm-hmm. and ask, anything you can do, and you go, yeah, I can do a few things. You know? uh-huh. Or as one director said to me on a comedy, he said, it's, I, I'm not laughing, it's not funny. Mm. Well, it's <laughs> hard because now you're talking about specific, you know, what, uh-huh. makes, what makes them laugh. Well, after spending a day and a half working on this with this guy, uh, who, who is a smart, talented guy. I mean, he's not a dummy who said this. Um, I found out that to him, a xylophone was funny. So when I used a xylophone, he said, oh, that's funny. I went, oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Um, but that wouldn't have been, that wouldn't have been the, um, that, that wouldn't have been the answer for another director. Another mm, right. director maybe had a completely different sense of humor and, and would, would not go with a xylophone, you know. I mean, I don't find xylophones funny. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm a director. Um, Does there, that ever get frustrating? Certain... Is that, uh, do you, yeah. do, I mean, you mentioned that Lawrence Kasdan doesn't necessarily, he's not a musician. He might not have spoken no. the language of music. Does it get frustrating if they're like, eh, make it, uh, you know, like in Halloween or like in, uh, no. you know. No, I'll, or... I'll tell you what, the, the, directors get, the directors get really funny about this. And, mm-hmm. and so do composers. Composers say, well, they don't know anything about my music and they don't know I did a good job, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. And the answer to that is that they don't need to know about your music. All they need to know is 
Did you make it scarier? Did you make it right. more romantic? Did you make it right. funnier? Or did you make it less than? Did you do emotionally what they asked? Did you drive the story mm-hmm. in a way that makes the film better for them? Okay, because yeah. we're working mm-hmm. we're working for one individual, for them. Mm-hmm. And if you did that, that's fine. They don't care about how you voice the flutes or, or how many trumpets you used and trombones. Right. If your piece is successful, the best you're going to hear is the director saying, that works. Let's go to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> all the musicians turn the page and they never play that piece again. And they read the new one. And we go through the whole process once more. The director will say, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that works fine. Or, oh, that, boy, that solved a problem for me. That's great. Or, hey, you missed this. Can you do, the, can you do something at that spot? And then, you know, you, you do all the kind of stuff. So yeah. you're making a lot of changes very often when you're recording as well. You're, sometimes you're rewriting on the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one instance when... Um, uh, I was working on a, a thing on a film with a director who I liked a lot. And I liked the film. It was a comedy. And um, basically everything was going well. And then at one point he walked out as I was recording. He said, hey, Bruce, that's not what you said you were going to do. And I said, oh, what was it I said I was going to do? Well, you're going to have a jazz thing, you know, because we're coming out from this jazz thing. And you're going to continue the jazz motif. And I, and I thought, oh, no, that's not what I did. And he said, so what are we going to do? <laughs> I said, Leave for like 15 minutes, just go away for 15 minutes and come back. Mm -hmm. So in those 15 minutes, I looked at my orchestra, I looked at what I had, I had a bass player, I had a trumpet player, I had a guitar player, I had people who could put together a jazz thing. I looked at my arrangement, I threw threw them all chords and the things I didn't need, I took out the things I could keep, I I kept, I changed a few things and he came back 15 minutes later and I played him a jazz cue. Nice. Yeah. That nice happens. You know? That doesn't happen <laughs> with the symphony, but it happens right. in the movies a lot. And any number of people um, can. I mean, John John um, Williams can do that. Al Silvestri can do that. Jerry Goldsmith could have done that. Uh, any number of people can do that because you know you're working in that medium for them. But you're not. You're not. I mean, you're sort of writing music, but what you're really doing is you're you're getting the drama closer to what the director's vision is. Mm-hmm. How long do you get with the orchestra? Like I, I always have this vision in my mind of like, you know, golden era of Hollywood. Like there's just an orchestra on standby 24 hours a day and <laughs> you can write in. The, okay. Uh, oh, well, I need to do this. But like how often, how long do you get with the orchestra to make changes or to work on the score? Or to... Well, it depends on, depends on how much music you have. Um, something like star Wars um, or actually forget Star Wars. I mean, ever since Star Wars, we put in, we've been loading up movies, you know, mm-hmm. like crazy music. You guys do the Indiana Jones movies. You, you know how much music's in there. I mean, there's just Absolutely. a ton of music. Yeah. So for something like that, um, particularly on a big budget film that is probably going to be seen by lots of people for many, 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 many years, um, they probably spend, I mean, I don't know how much time John spent on that, but um, there's probably a few rewrites now and again and, and probably some changes here and there. Um, I think Silverado was done in four days. Wow. And I think we oh, came wow. back to do to do something, to do a main title or something. Mm-hmm. Um four four to five days was mostly what I would spend on a on a feature. Um okay. some some people will spend two weeks, depends. I mean, sometimes you get a day and a half, depends on what the budget is. Budget uh-huh. is always the the um modifying factor in what's gonna happen. Also the size of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. The orchestra for Silverado wasn't huge. It was good size, but it wasn't huge. Mm. Um, it sounds but, huge. You know, there's that that I don't know if it's because of the visuals or just the instrumentation, but that it, it's got that huge. 
That's, that's Vista of, sound, you know? That's yeah. because of me. I know how to make it sound big. There you go. You're a pro. <laughs> I, I, actually, I'm, I, I mean, it sounds like a stupid thing to say, but, but actually it's true because when I began, I mean, I'm in my mid-70s, okay? So when I first started writing music for films, I was in my late 20s or early 30s. And as I said, we worked with film. We didn't work with digital stuff because nobody even knew it. I mean, nobody had even thought about digital. I mean, the stuff that we that we do and take for granted now, it, it, it wasn't even in Dick Tracy, and that was about as modern as... <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so when I when I first started working, I, I worked for CBS Television as a music supervisor, and I started writing shows while I was there. CBS always had an eighteen-person orchestra, so we mm-hmm. could use any instrumentation we wanted. We could use seventeen flutes and then a, and a I don't know a um, clarinet or something, you know. But it didn't wow. matter what we used as long as we made it work. Mm-hmm. So with those eighteen people, we worked on shows like Hawaii Five O, Gunsmoke. Yeah. Wild, Wild West, and I mean anything that we did. Whoever came, it didn't matter who the composer was. Bernard Herman came one time and he did a western. He did it with eighteen people. Wow. He used wow. six. He used six double basses, the big contra basses, six bass clarinets, and six bassoons. The orchestra <laughs> sounded like. But it was Bernard Herman, and it was a really kind of. It was a very cool score. The producers thought it was yeah. great. So uh-huh. you could do anything you wanted. So we changed it all the time. And because I'm on staff, I'm watching other people record as well. And I'm picking up stuff, that, how they work. I try things up. When I left CBS, I went into doing television series. And again, I was working with live orchestras, either 20-piece orchestras. Sometimes I got up to 35, where I thought I was, you know, in hog heaven. <laughs> I got into TV movies. I was doing orchestras, 45 to 65 people, thinking I was, I really hit the big time. So we're used to working with with all different kinds of combinations. And a lot of us became really good orchestrators because we practiced a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you get to a movie like this, um, yeah, if you need to make it sound big, you know how to make it sound big. You know, who- have you, uh, have you ever considered writing a score or a main theme for your own life? No. <laughs> I've done that many times. <laughs> yeah. 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 What 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 did it sound like, or what was did it did it go through a whole? I can play one of them. Wow, I'd love to hear yeah. it. That's Tiny Tunes, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's Homeward Bound, which a lot of young people know because they watch this as kids. I mean, I've got tons of themes with melodic lines going, you know, which are popular to some people who watch all all different styles and all that kind of stuff. And I would say that any one of them could be the theme of my life because they they all pop out of me. And Uh that's that's another kind of interesting thing. If you if you took two composers to do the same movie one after the other you'd find the movie would change. The movie mm. would be different because you've got one person's uh, subjective opinion and feelings, mostly feelings about what he's doing or she's doing. And then you have this other person with, with a completely different take on it. So, um, you know, so the, the themes of my life are the themes basically that I wrote for the movies. There was uh, two pieces I wanted to ask you about. 
um, your own pieces. I didn't see them for necessarily a movie, but the it was a concerto for tuba. Oh yeah, yeah. I came across that was the the, the Iceland Symphony Orchestra. Right. They I think that was. They, yeah, they recorded it, and it was it was fantastic. Now, when we were talking about earlier, um, certain ideas or influences, do you, and and whether you borrow it or how it determines what you write, you know, the tuba uh, to a non tuba player, as myself, it, it's like you 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 frequently hear it as like you know the, I don't know the big dog fell down the stairs and landed <laughs> on his ass or whatever it is you know what i mean oh. that's kind of and so i listened to your piece which was really interesting and it had a a sort of um i don't know it had this sort of playful you know mischievous quality to it that that particular piece at least that's what i heard and i thought so did you say when you wrote that were you like i want to write something that's sort of playful and mischievous i know of course i'll use the tuba or was it the other way around? You're like, you know what? I'm going to let the tuba shine. I'm tired of the tuba not getting its just due. <laughs> and well, um, it's, it, it's sort of a little bit of all those. Um, the tuba player was a guy named Tommy Johnson. Tommy Johnson at that time was probably the most recorded uh, tuba player in the world. That's the that's the way he mm. presented himself. Wow. He, in fact, was the tuba player you heard on Jaws. Do, 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 do. Wow. Oh, wow. That's Tommy. Wow. And, um, Tommy played... I mean, Tommy was an incredible tuba player. He was the, the teacher to many tuba players who are in orchestras right now. But he was also a really great guy, and he happened to be my neighbor. So um, <laughs> I used to, uh, I mean, we used to hang out a lot with each other, and this is years ago. Uh, he's since passed away, unfortunately, but I would go over to his house, and I would play the piano for his students, some of which, like one of his students just retired from the L.A. Philharmonic. You know, but I remember when he was like 17 years old and, you know, we were sitting there playing this stuff and I would accompany Tommy. Now, he was a great player. And the, and the tuba, just so you know, the, the tuba, although it's a huge instrument and it takes a lot of breath to play, it is very versatile. It can play almost anything a trumpet can play. I mean, honestly, mm. it, it's just, yeah. it's just, just all, it has this massive range. Mm. So the, the way people think of the tuba, the the closest people get to what a tuba can actually do is this little piece called um, Tubby the Tuba, which you may have heard when you were a kid. A little sure. about how the tubas never get any solos. Anyway. So I used to play, I used to accompany Tommy. And the thing I found out is that the tuba had a lot of great parts written for it, but the accompaniment sucked. Mm. And they were usually <laughs> people who didn't know how to write for the piano and they were really boring, you know? So I thought, I'm going to write a piece for Tommy and a, a piece that he and I together will enjoy, where I'm going to get as much out of it as he does. So I wrote this piece and uh, <laughs> he went through it like a hot knife through butter, but he, uh, he played it and played it and played it. And then I did the arrangement that, you know, that you heard recorded. Um, he gave it to his students and um, uh, it got around to other tuba professors. So this piece gets played a lot. It gets played mostly in uh, schools for auditions and for recitals. It's been recorded several times. Um, it's probably my most popular concert piece. And yeah, it is lighthearted because it was just meant for something that Tommy and I would enjoy that an audience would enjoy. And that was it. It's taken its knocks because oh. of that, because of the movie composer writes this piece of fluff or this piece of ear candy, you know, blah, 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 who cares. But the thing is the piece is really popular and it's, it's well-liked and it gets played a lot. But I also oh. have a piccolo concerto and I, I just finished a French horn concerto that's going to get played in March. So, um, oh, 
you know, you hear a piccolo concerto, um, that can be kind of daunting because these buggers can, you know, uh, <laughs> but yeah. this one's really, it's a really cute piece. It's, it's, I mean, it's a hard piece. Um, I, I heard it played with the Cleveland Symphony a few years ago and by the piccolo player who was spectacular and the audience just wow. went berserk, you know, because they weren't expecting to have a good time listening to a piccolo. So all <laughs> I, I know the feeling. Yeah. Uh, so that brings me to a second question about another piece of yours. You, you had a concerto piece for eight trumpets. Yeah. And I, you know, I was listening to that. And um, first of all, how, I mean, for, you know, when I, I, I looked at the title of it, I was like, well, it's going to sound like a clown car of trumpets. I mean, these guys aren't going <laughs> to, I'm like, how are they going to record without stepping all over each other? Damn trumpet players always mouthing and they got to be the number one guy. But, <laughs> I listened to it. I mean, it, I, it was riveting because it's like at first I'm waiting for something else to come in because I don't know. I don't I haven't lived a life only hearing eight trumpets. So that's it. <laughs> so I, I'm sort of like, wait, is there something else supposed to? And then when nothing comes in, it's like full and stark. Hmm. At the same time, it, it was incredible. Yeah, it's really, it, yeah, I, I wrote a piece once for eight horns, and then I got a commission a couple of years ago to write a piece for 16 horns for the Hollywood <laughs> Bowl. Wow. And it opened up a concert, and um, that's a lot of horns. But yeah, <laughs> you, you get to hear what these instruments can do. Um, there are trombone choirs, which are really fun to listen to. You know, it's a lot of these instruments, like talking about the tuba and the trumpets, they all have their own societies. So they have like a tuba society, a double reed society for oboe players and bassoon players, wow. um, string societies, flute societies, and all that kind of stuff. So when you go to one of their society meetings, you hear all sorts of pieces written for <laughs> these instruments. Uh, it really expands your mind as to what the, some of these things can do. I remember hearing a, a flute player play a piece that man, he was using techniques I'd never heard in my life. And I asked him, I said, who wrote that? He says, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess I you know. No, but I mean, it's really interesting. But yeah, the trumpet piece, it's basically a big fanfare, that piece that you heard. Yeah. And, uh, it's exciting to hear it with eight people playing it. No, it, yeah, it was, it was uh, and, and the different melodies that in, interwoven. Yeah. And how they yeah. supported each other. But, you know, part of that thing is, as I was saying before, because I did a lot of work in television and worked a lot with orchestras, um, you get a chance to to learn a lot about the instruments, and then you you just take chances. So when somebody writes for, you know, if somebody asks for a piece for eight trumpets, you go, uh, yeah, okay, I think I can do that. I think I know how to do that. There's some tracks. Isn't it? I gotta ask you, what's what's the uh, stereotype for the drummers and percussionists? <laughs> stereotype. <laughs> like, oh, not that guy. He uh, drummer just walked in the room. What's the? <laughs> well, I mean, no, look, look, I mean, there are drummers and there are drummers. I mean, there are you know there are kids who can learn the backbeats and learn two and four and all that kind of stuff. And then there's some people who are really, really, really skilled. And um, like, if you're working on a um, uh, on a commercial piece that, that's kind of hip, and you've got a bass player, a live bass player, not a synth. You've got a bass player. The bass player and the and the drummer are listening to each other to pick up each other's licks. So that you know, yeah. the bass come in a little bit to pick up that drum thing, and the drum will wait to hear what the bass player is doing. 
And then the the, uh, the pianist or the guitarist, all the rhythm guys, they're all listening to each other to make that thing sound as tight as possible. So there's, you know, there's percussion, there's percussion. A, a, symph a symphony player is somebody who needs to read, can play a variety of instruments like xylophone, marimba, snare drum, pic uh, piccolo, mm. whatever, you know, and yeah. um, needs to play all these kinds of things and needs to be able to follow a conductor at the same time, which is not so easy. Um, some of them are, you know, they're, they're good drummers as well, I mean, because they learn how to do that stuff. So a lot of these people have, oh, it's like the um, the players in an orchestra, you don't expect them to, and most of them don't, but every once in a while you'll go to an orchestra where the, your lead trumpet player can play jazz or your yeah. trombone player can play jazz, or maybe the clarinet player plays a mean sax. Um, you know, you can, you can do that. Um, musicians have a lot of variety. There was one guy I knew, he, he used to be the, I think he was the, the principal oboe player for the LA Philharmonic. And he also played saw. Really? Musical saw, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. It was pretty weird and it's pretty, pretty <laughs> far away from playing oboe. And he was a good oboe player, but he was also a good saw-er, you know? <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you worked with, is it Emil Richards? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Emil, Emil's, um, well, I mean, not Emil passed away, but Emil yeah. was one of those guys who was just really interested in all sorts of percussion. He would invent mm. percussion. There's, a, there's an instrument that he invented, which Jerry Goldsmith used to use a lot. In fact, it's on Silverado. I used it on Silverado, called the, um, the bass slide whistle. And it sounds sort of like, mm. Mm. oh, sure. Yeah. And it's, he invented it because Jerry wanted it for Planet of the Apes. So it's this thing that stood about you know, about a, a yard high, you know, three feet high. And this big, big box, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but he would get this great sound. I mean, it was a beautiful instrument. Yeah. Uh, Emil wrote a book on um, varieties of instruments, you know, worldwide. And he had this huge collection. But a lot of guys have that. I mean, a lot of guys. And then they, they, the guys mix it up with digital stuff and they put effects onto it. So a lot of stuff that you're hearing um, – is made up by the player on the spot. You know, they get yeah. very creative. You got to work obviously very closely with Lawrence Kasdan on Silverado. And he wrote, you know, our favorite movie Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> and, you know, Empire Six. Is, is he, should, are we, are we right to, um to honor him and love him and his work? Is he a good guy? Is he good to work yeah. with? Yeah. Okay. He is. He, I, I like him a lot. He's, he's a, uh, he's a very smart guy. He's a very talented guy. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, he was, he was great to work with. I mean, it was one of the best jobs I ever had. We got on great. And, awesome. um, no, I, he's, a, he's the, he's the real deal. Yeah. That's good. To know. You, uh, one thing I'm curious about, one thing I really like is, uh, music for themed rides. And oh, yeah. I know you've done some of the Disney music. How, what is what is it like composing, you know, like Spaceship Earth or something? what is it like composing that compared to composing something for a movie? Um, it's it's really I, I love those jobs. I mean, I, I think the two best jobs, the two best kinds of jobs I ever had were either theme parks or doing animation. Hmm. One of the reasons oh, is because by the time you get to the job, they've figured out most of the problems and they are not going to reshoot. <laughs> OK, right. You know, they know what like on the Disney, the Disney parks. All the all the theme parks I've done have been for Disney, with the exception of one that was done for Ferrari. 
over in Spain. <laughs> oh, wow. Ferrari land, you know. Anyway, um, when you get to the Disney parks, they've got everything worked out. I mean, they know how long it takes to seat people uh, on a ride like Spaceship Earth, which is moving. They know how mm -hmm. long it takes to get somebody in safely. And sometimes the ride stops. I used to think it was because it broke down, but it's not that. They'll stop the ride to make sure that somebody can get on safely. They don't want to have any accidents. Mm -hmm. they, um, there was another one I did called uh, Ellen's Energy Adventure that was a big room that took 600 people. They had six wow. uh, what they call people movers. Each one held 100 people. So they were prepared to, to show 600 people the show at a time. So in... In the timings that I got for my opening piece was um, when the doors opened, when the doors closed, when the lights went down. I mean, they had the whole thing figured out. Like, if we're going to move 600 people safely mm -hmm. in and out of this place, what are we going to do? They, um, they often include a piece called the uh, spill and the fill. And when <laughs> I saw this, I said, well, you know, what is this thing? Spill? Well, what a spill is, is... Well, I rather what the fill is, is when you fill the auditorium. Hmm. So if you write the fill, that's the music that you play as people are coming in. That stuff okay. is all timed. When the door wow. closes, when the door, it's all timed. Um, the spill is when they leave. So sometimes <laughs> you play the same piece, you play it as a loop. So by the time you yeah. get to all the other, you know, so, but I mean, they have everything worked out. So on something like Spaceship Earth, I had never done a, um, I had never done a real ride before. Most of the stuff that I had done involved some sort of motion picture kind of things. I did a lot of the um, nine screen things, the the circle vision things. You know, oh, sure. Yeah. Which were really a lot of fun. I mean, they were really a lot of fun. They were all a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I made a lot of really good friends over at Disney and we see each other socially still, you know. Um, oh, great. It's just, it's just a great group of people. Mm -hmm. They're very creative. And uh, I would say that they were the shows that almost – Almost on every one, the first time I'd see the show, I would get really confused as to what to do. <laughs> I, original. I mean, I yeah, you know, I, I really didn't I didn't know how to solve this problem. And then that was part of the, that was part of the fun, trying to solve the problem and then getting mm -hmm. the music done, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, like on uh, Spaceship Earth, they had a problem that they didn't know how to solve. As it turned out, I knew how to solve it. But as I said, the um, the ride occasionally stops. And part of the, the thing in Spaceship Earth is they have three or four rooms, each which portrays a certain era in history, like, like mm -hmm. ancient Rome, uh, Phoenicia, Egypt, and whatever. You know. And he said, um, sometimes when the thing stops, you can find yourself between two rooms, and each room has its own music. So he oh. said, we don't know how you're going to handle that. And I thought, oh, that's really easy. You know, That's really easy because they do the same thing on um, It's a Small World. On Small World, you take this little boat and it goes around and you see all these all these little children dressed in different costumes, singing in different languages, singing the same song over and over and over again. Oh. But they sing it in the same pitch, the same key, and they sing it in the same um, in the same time. So it's all da da dee da da, you know, all mm -hmm. because it's all based on that one pitch and that one um, time. Anyone so, who's been stuck on that ride for any period of time knows the song very well. Yeah, <laughs> I probably just gave somebody an earworm right now. Just <laughs> no, but the thing is, it's basically the same thing just over and over and over and over and over again. So what I did is I wrote for Spaceship Earth, I would write four pieces, all of which were at the same tempo, using the same chords, but in oh, different wow. styles. And if yeah. you played them on top of each other, 
they could all be played together, you know, because I tried it out on my synth. I put them all together, and you know, that, so it was kind of a oh wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's just, they're, they're really fun. They're really fun things. The the last one I did was particularly nice because it was a um, an update to the show Soaring, which had been done by Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, that's what Soaring over California. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was a big. I mean, it's a great show, uh-huh. and it was the favorite score of a lot of people in the park. Well, they did a sequel to it, um, "Soaring Over the World," and Jerry had passed away, um, so they asked me if I would if I would do "Soaring Over the World" using his themes, mm-hmm. and then doing the you know. So it it was pretty cool because I I admired Jerry a lot, and so I was able to use his basic themes, write my own music when it was appropriate, and do this fantastic show. It's wow. really it's like if you only saw one show in the park, that's the one you ought to go see because that's a great show. Uh-huh. Anyway, oh, fantastic! That's cool. A lot of fun. And, oh, and then the other thing is, millions of people go to see it. So I've done shows in <laughs> in Paris, in Florida, in California, in Shanghai, <laughs> in Tokyo. I mean, just all over the world, literally. I mean, people go see this thing, and you get letters from people. But you know, I mean, literally millions of people have seen it, and it's uh, it's it's a real big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, well, is there any? Uh, do you have any other uh, final thoughts about Silverado? Your experience on the movie, uh, the friends you made along the way. Before we uh, wrap up, this has been well, great. Silverado, it's been well, great talking to you. Um, yeah, I'm. I can always be grateful to Silverado because it started my motion picture career. It's still yeah. probably the one score that people talk about more than any other. Um, mm. I'm fortunate that I, I, I guess we all do. I don't know, but I, I get letters from people who, I mean, this is kind of weird, actually. I get letters from people <laughs> who are not asking me for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will write me a letter saying that for 35 years, I've been listening to your score to Silverado, Homeward Bound, Rescuers Down Under, something like that. And I just want to thank you for the enjoyment that your music has given me for all that time. I wow. still listen to it, or I'm listening to it as I'm writing this letter, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. so thank you very much. Sincerely yours, you know, and I'm thinking, geez, you know, that's pretty cool. So yeah, that's really cool. That's wow. Silverado is a good movie. I'm I'm happy with the score. I still like the score. I still like the movie. I think it's uh it was a really good job. It was you know, I just got no, you, you, you know what? I, I don't. Th- I think it was Elmer Bernstein. That's garbage. Elmer would have said the same thing. <laughs> no, I, I liked Elmer. I mean, Elmer. El, Elmer knew how to have a good time. That's for sure. He really yeah. did. <laughs> you know, he, wrote some, he wrote some stunning themes. I mean, he, oh he yeah. Did. In fact, thinking about um, that, the Western thing. Um, that was the. I think that was. One of the first scores, if not the first score, that actually got out of a motion picture and got put into something else. I mean, that became a remember it was a Marlboro man. It was a Marlboro. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Usually before that time, the, the, the background music was always the background. His actually got into the foreground. And mm-hmm. then some of his other stuff like um, Man with the Golden Arm and things like that, along with Peter Gunn by Mancini, because Mancini was doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. These got be these these were used by high schools in um, football games. You know, at halftime, mm-hmm. you start to hear bum 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 bum. Yeah, TV themes. And before this, that had never happened. So they brought music, you know, out into concerts. And and now you know we have summer concerts. They, Silverado gets played a lot during the summer for pops concerts, as does. You know, Star Wars and all those other yeah, things. Sure. Yeah, it's a it's sort of a movie staple. It's great. 
Well, and Ar- awesome. Arthur Conley and uh, Sweet Soul Music. He borrowed Magnificent Seven. Like it's oh, yeah? that's what it dun 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 dun. dun, dun. It, you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, that, 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 okay, so, arm, you know, arm so I know I know a company that borrowed Silverado. Oh, really? Borrowed mm-hmm. isn't really the right term for it. <laughs> copyright infringement. Oh. But, um, yeah, I'm trying Did to. They get a letter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're working on it. I'm working on okay. it. Okay, all right. It, really, it ticks me off, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that sure. sounds annoying. Yeah. I particularly like to read how the guy was inspired to write it. So. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. I was inspired to write it when I heard the exact thing that I wanted to write. Yeah. <laughs> well, what, well, Bruce, thank final, you. Oh, I'm I, sorry, I wanted no. to ask one Go final ahead. question. You're in Los Angeles. Yeah. What's your favorite place to get a taco? <laughs> I haven't. Geez, I haven't had a taco for so long. I couldn't tell you. It's probably oh, wow. probably my kitchen. Oh, yeah. beautiful. Jerry will be over in just a few minutes. I go for Mexican food. I don't. I don't order tacos. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I really. I'm sorry. I'm. I'm a loser on that one. I can't tell. No, I don't know. Hey, I like right. because I'm you know too haughty. But no, I. I love tacos, but <laughs> I can make them at home and have a really good time with them. You know? I'm, I'm going to send you a letter saying, "Dear Bruce, I just I'm thinking of you <laughs> while I'm eating this taco." Yeah. <laughs> while I'm talking to you on the truth, podcast. I, I like them yeah. a certain way, and I, I don't order them at restaurants because I never know whether they're going to be soggy or not. Yeah, and I can't stand soggy taco, tacos. Yeah. So yeah. there are a lot of other things I enjoy in Mexican food, but it, that, that mm-hmm. taco I, w- I won't order. No, that's a fine yeah. answer. There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. This yeah, has been, thank this, you very this much. This is the way to watch a minute of people uh, riding horses, is to, <laughs> yeah. to talk with the guy who made that scene interesting. By the way, if you, if you watch this scene carefully, it's kind, of hard to, it's kind of hard to see it because they fixed it. But you can see that the scene was not shot all of a sudden, that the light changes dramatically from oh. um, the first part through the middle part where it gets kind of gray. And then you get to the last part where they go up to the hill where it's obviously the end of the day. And we're trying to make it look like in that one minute, it was the same minute. But <laughs> look at it, you can see movie magic there. Um, they were trying to make the make the picture look pretty much the same all the way wow. through. Well, nice. Well, so, they do what they got to do. I mean, that's what movies do, right? It's, it's yeah, a, right. a way of making you believe like believe something. Yeah. So the music is supposed to make you believe that everybody's big and tall and really hard and hard-bodied and, you know, good guys or bad guys or whatever and the girls are more beautiful and the guys are more sexier and you know blah 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 blah. <laughs> so, awesome that's what we do for a living that's yep. right well thank you so much you've enlightened us and uh now we have to go watch the rest of the movie yeah, <laughs> One yeah. Time. yeah. <laughs> start with the 35th minute you know there we go yeah <laughs> So yes, for this and every minute of the Silverado podcast, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or you can go to the main site, silveradominute.com. You can also find us over on Facebook at the Midnight Star, the Silverado Minute Listener Saloon, and you can find us on Facebook at Silverado MXM. Uh, So please join us here tomorrow for the next minute of the Silverado Minute. Yee-haw! Yee-haw!